Howdy, and welcome to Ernest Goes to Podcast, your one-stop shop for ludicrously overthought discussion on beloved American icons like Ernest P. Worrell, and only Ernest P. Worrell, as portrayed by the incomparable, although we are going to compare him anyway, Jim Varney. This is episode 21, Ernest Analogs. I'm your host, Aaron, and this is my lovely co-host, David. Hi-ho, listeners. Wait, is that an Ernest analog? Someone who says hi-ho? I don't know. It could be. So, David. Yes. This is your episode of Ernest Goes to Podcast. I'm giving you free reign. Mm -hmm. I'm taking off. What's the the thingy? Your lower jaw? I don't know. That's what you're gesturing (laughs) to. muscle. Or I'm taking off what was previously keeping you from discussing all the things and people that remind you of Ernest. Sure. During this podcast. Well, I think. You know, I think we try to keep our episodes to like a, a nicely flowing two or three hours. Yeah, focus. So, yeah, so I think what often gets the axe first is <laughs> comparing characters to Ernest or comparing Ernest to other characters. Yeah, and pretty I know much anyone who isn't Ernest gets the axe. I think more than once the characters who are on my T-shirt right now uh, <laughs> have been given the old heave-ho in deference to Ernest because, as you stated, the goal of this podcast is to discuss Ernest and only Ernest except for this episode. Except for this episode because I think, well, as we've said repeatedly throughout our 50-hour dissertation on Ernest P. Worrell. 50 hours so far. This is a character analysis podcast, not a film review podcast, and not a podcast about other things that remind us of Ernest. Mm-hmm. However, I do think at this point, since we've been through all the movies, it'll be a valuable learning experience sure. to compare and contrast Ernest to all the other characters that have come up in discussion while we've been going on this Ernest journey. And so as I did all this research, all these weird connections and commonalities between some of the people we've talked about have come up. And mm-hmm. so I think... Between them and Ernest or between the, each other? Yes. Okay. Both. <laughs> Got it. And so I think by the end of this, we may be able to see some things about Ernest and Ooh. or Jim Varney that uh, we may be able to see them more clearly, having looked at them through like outside perspectives and in the context of history. You know, nothing nothing exists in a vacuum, right? Everything comes from somewhere and everything yes. leaves a mark that is felt in other places. And I think Ernest P. Worrell is no exception. So this is Ernest Analogs. Yes. Now I'm going to ask you, Dave, what do you mean by Ernest Analogs? Well, we've talked about characters or performances that are similar to Ernest, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in their manner or their storyline. Google says that a analog is, quote, a person or thing seen as comparable to another. So so what we're not saying is all of these people or all these characters are carbon (laughs) copies. (laughs) Well, they're not digital. Uh, We're not saying that all these characters are exactly like Ernest. No, certainly not. Or even largely like Ernest. What we're saying is that there is a comparison that can be made, whether it's been made by you or I, Mm -hmm. or I reread Justin's book, uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, The Life of Actor Jim Varney, Mm -hmm. available on Amazon. Um, and in that, he, like a lot of comparisons are made not only by Justin as the author, but mm-hmm. also in file archival interviews with Jim. That's so, true. So yeah, that, yeah. there's value there. And in popular culture, people say, oh, this reminds me of Ernest. Yes. It's- yeah, absolutely. Uh, and even we, of course, as always, went to our listeners and oh, asked right. them. So I don't mm. I don't think I don't think this discussion should turn into you said to me before we sat down, yeah. like, I feel like this is just going to turn into me arguing with you. About how these characters are not like Ernest. Yeah, and, basically. Yeah, that's I, what happens every time somebody compares Ernest to someone else. I go, okay, but this is why Ernest is better and sure. superior, uh, clearly. A, you're preaching to the choir. But B, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't think, like, I'm not interested in having that discussion like, sure. of, of whether these characters should be on this list or not. I think they've come up 
this podcast, as we've said before, is in the earnest tradition, a bastion of positivity, and we can just sort of examine everybody on this list and sort of talk about what it is about them that makes them comparable right. to our- Ernest Analog is not a title that we is granted to Correct. someone if they're enough like Ernest. Correct. These it, are just things that have come up and we're comparing and contrasting. You got it. It's cool. The, the title of this discussion is Sweet. what it is. And with that, we're going to start Ernest Analogs. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have no idea what this discussion is going to be. Yeah, so the How other, exciting. Well, that's, that's the other thing. You know, like, again, as I was doing all this research, I just kept having these weird discoveries. And I think it made for interesting reading or viewing, but also it made me feel like, oh, I don't know where this conversation nope. is going to go. So what I've tried to do is structure it, structure it in a way that I've classified as chronological-ish. Okay. So I've separated this out into five different eras. And in each okay. era, we can go over sort of honorable mention Mm, uh, okay. analogs where it's like they've come up but there's not really a lot to unpack there gotcha and then we can move on to the quote unquote the main analogs, main analogs mm. where it's like oh these are ones that have come up in a lot of previous discussions yes. I can I can think of a couple just off the top of my head that will not stop <laughs> coming up <laughs> uh, some will be character analogs where it's like oh that character's kind of like Ernest some of them I think will be performance analogs where it's like oh this is kind of like how Jim Varney played Ernest or oh. this character's relationship to the actor is kind of like Ernest's relationship to Jim Varney. I see. So stuff like that. Ooh, I, we're getting deep, man. Yeah. As uh, usual. I, again, I will try to keep this as non-academic <laughs> as possible, although I really I did mean... enjoy... <laughs> The trouble is, like, each of our normal episodes is we watch a movie, and then, as you've said previously, we unload our brains. Yeah, yep. This, I tried to watch so many different things that That's it's like, the thing. it's impossible. You know how long we've been prepping for this episode? I've, I watched, like, three years. 13 movies. Yeah, I think I watched more than that. <laughs> that was just all I could do. But yeah, anyway. yeah, no, there's a lot. And the other thing we can say is, as with every other topic we've covered, this will not be the end of the discussion. <laughs> this is not, like, the be-all, like, we did it, we figured it out. There's going to be more stuff that I'm sure will come up later. Oh, yes. But with that, let's get right into this, right, this so craziness. Chronological-ish. Chronological-ish. Where do so, we start? So I'm sure that there must be earnest analogs that predate motion pictures. Yes. Caveman earnest. Yeah. Um. <laughs> writing, just a drawing on a cave wall, a guy in a vest and a, a hat. No, but like it's it's hard to do research on visual performances mm -hmm. from a time where there's no record of it. So where I think we should start is the dawn of moving pictures, the early 20th century. Okay. Uh, moving pictures, not necessarily talking pictures, right? Yes, that's true. Because... Uh, because. <laughs> well, so a couple of people that have come up in conversation, uh, Buster Keaton sure. is a, a very popular uh, silent film star, very physical actor. Lots of like very memorable gags. If you've ever seen a movie where someone has a house fall on right. them and they go through the window, like Ernest rides again. Sort oh, of. you're right. Yeah, that's that's a, a <laughs> like sort of a the, house frame. Yeah, exactly. The a, a moderate version of that. Yeah. Anytime you see that gag, it's basically right. calling back to Buster Keaton. I think physical actors, yeah, and performances for sure. are going to come up a lot. Well, in the silent era, that's what everything was. Exactly. And, and there's also like the the sort of the holdover from. Moving from vaudeville and stage into silent film, like a lot of that stuff kind but of- But I think this era is largely where er a lot of Ernest's inspiration comes from. Oh, certainly. So this will be the most apt. So we can bring up a couple of like early comedians, uh, the Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello. Ah, uh, um, Abbott! I know in rereading Justin's book, we know that two of Jim's favorite comedians as a child were Laurel and Hardy, and uh, they are- I was more of an Abbott and Costello girl, to be honest. Interesting. Well, I mean, who's on first? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the Laurel and Hardy equivalent of something that has lasted so long, been so iconic? Uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers. 
it, it's a lot of the stuff is like things that stick with you from childhood, right? That's right. But you know what? Fair enough, Jim Varney. That's cool. yeah. You know, not to move ahead too far into time later, but of course there was the New Adventures of Laurel and Hardy that John R. Cherry directed. That's right. Later in the in the late nineties, and I'm pretty sure Jim Varney like wanted to be somewhere. There's a photo of him and Guyward Sartain as Laurel and Hardy that's in right. costume, and I think it ended up being. Bronson Pinchot. That's right. So he was a big fan. We can pretty much just take from the fact that he was a fan that there's Laurel and Hardy influence in earnest. Well, sure. And just like you just talked about Abbott and Costello being like formative for you, like this is something he loved as a child. So Mm -hmm. I would be surprised if it didn't make its way into uh, his performance in any way, shape or form. Uh, A couple of listener comments. Randy Schmitz says, some comparisons can be made to Curly from the Three Stooges. Mm. He He would often comprehend things in awkward ways. And was indestructible. And then in parentheses says, <laughs> he can true. have a 50 pound weight dropped off a roof onto his head and will be perfectly okay. Yeah. I mean, it's good comedy. River M. Rose says, he always reminded me of a mix, he being Ernest. Ernest. Uh, he always reminded me of a mix of Lou Costello and Stan Laurel. So they, it's They're, like okay. the best of both worlds. All right. uh, with his ability of innocence mixed with comedic facial ability. Okay. I gotcha. People rarely understand how much it takes to be the idiot. And how much yes. work there goes into making them believable when in reality, they are nothing like their on-screen personality. Boom! That's right. Our <laughs> listeners are on point. Yep, as always. Uh, one last uh, honorable mention before we get into the, the meat of the early I 20th know century. Who he is. You know who, who is? The meaty oh, yeah. 20th just, century. Okay, okay. One, one more thing I just want to bring up okay. because I'm a huge fan is Harry Houdini. Oh, uh, right. You've mentioned him before and I do. I have. Well... In addition to early film having a lot of crossover with magic tricks, even into like oh, the 1950s yeah. where like before special right. effects were a thing, stage effects were what was used to like accomplish a lot of that stuff. Yeah, that's um, true. And Harry Houdini specifically because he was like a very physical performer. When when we talk about like how jacked Jim Varney is because of like the <laughs> physical yeah. performance, like I think of Harry Houdini a lot where he was like in incredible shape because it was necessary to kind of pull off some of the tricks that he did. I know there was one where he would like, they would tie him in like a certain, I don't know if it was a straitjacket or some kind of binding. And he would basically Probably. just like flex his entire body while they were tying it. And then like once they tied it as tight as they could, oh. then he would just like relax and it would make it easier to get out of right. the thing. And I'm always like, yeah, there's there's something there. It's good survival advice. Too. Exactly. But yes, uh, the main discussion. I think no one is going to be surprised by this. <laughs> uh, the pinnacle of Ernest analogs from the early 20th century. Drum roll. That's a drum roll, Vern. Uh, the pinnacle is, of course, uh, Charlie Chaplin as <laughs> as the tramp, a.k.a. the little fellow. He's my favorite. Yeah, he's... Charlie Chaplin <laughs> he's is wonderful. Amazing. We watched, what, The Gold Rush? We watched The Gold Rush from uh, 1925. Oh, my gosh. And... It holds up, man. You know, like, I watched a whole lot of movies for this discussion so we could compare tons of characters to Ernest, and I probably laughed the most at The Gold Rush. Yeah, yeah. Even though it was a silent film, and you would think I would have trouble relating to the humor. Yeah, yeah. Which I do sometimes find comedy really dated, but The Gold Rush, this silent film era, man, it was it was just hilarious. It's interesting that you say that because I think some of the stuff that we get to in later mm-hmm. um, time periods is very tied to the time that it came out mm-hmm. and does not hold up in the same way. But like, this is just like- It's timeless. timeless. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's so- Timeless, universally, iconic. Yeah. Like, it's the physical performance that's so brilliant. Yeah. And of course, uh, probably the main reference point for comparing to Jim Varney is Worrell Family Album. Oh, really? Uh, well, in Justin's book, he talks about Lloyd Worrell and quote unquote, starvation-induced lunacy. 
<laughs> right. And that's absolutely in the gold rush where- Oh, right, because uh, they eat the, a shoe. The Tramp and Big Jim <laughs> are like trying to stave off dying and they're just basically it's cutting funny. up- It's it, it is. It works. Uh, you have to watch the gold rush, listeners. There's some amazing- Wasn't there like a house dangling off the edge of a cliff? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, there's really just like fun effects. There's a not quite love interest. <laughs> there, She's a love interest. Is she? Like, I could never really- On like... his part. Sure, sure. On Charlie Chaplin's part, sure, sure. The Little Tramp. Yeah. She's a straight up love interest. Right. But, well, he's also the characterization. He's like a hapless sort of, yep. you know, underdog, downtrodden, sweet, just trying to survive, just trying to interact with the world. So I, I pulled some quotes from Wikipedia. Sure. Chaplin's silent films typically follow the tramp's efforts to survive in a hostile world. (laughs) There you go. The character lives- That's earnest. Yep. The character lives in poverty and is frequently treated badly, but remains kind and upbeat. Yay. Defying his social position, he strives to be seen as a gentleman. Boo! So that's 100% earnest. As Chaplin said in 1925, quote, the whole point of the little fellow is that no matter how down on his ass he is, no matter how well the jackals succeed in tearing him apart, he is still a man of dignity. Oh, that just touched me. Yeah. That touched my heart. And it hasn't, I feel like I remember Jim Varney directly referencing the little tramp. Is it the little tramp? I don't know. It's the tramp or the little fellow. Um, hang on one second. I think I have a quote from Jim Varney. Okay. Yeah. I feel like he said directly like Ernest is based on this. I'm just going to keep quoting Justin's book. Okay, sure. Uh, Jim always told interviewers that Charlie Chaplin was his biggest influence when it came to Ernest. Yes. Jim said once, quote, physical comedy is a comedy that works in any language, and Chaplin knew that. His success was based on the fact that he never opened his mouth to get a laugh. I think people like physical comedy, which is why cartoons are so successful. He's right. Here's the thing. People like physical comedy if it's done really well. Yeah. If it's done terribly, ooh. But well done physical comedy is a gift. Oh, yeah. It requires a great amount of control and physical discipline. It's calculated. It's not just stuff falling on the heads. All, I know elsewhere in Justin's book, it talks about how uh, John Cherry would also compare Jim Varney to Chaplin, talking about the way he used his facial expressions to draw in an audience. Yeah. And I think that's totally on point as well. <laughs> and like I've said before, I'm an animator. Yep. And in animation classes, Charlie Chaplin is referenced a lot oh, yeah. in telling us how to deliver a physical performance. And I think people should also use Ernest as an example. For sure. They're, they're on par. Because Jim Vardy's, yeah. One other thing. We have already talked about how amazing Jim Vardy's <laughs> physicality is. How it's just the control, the anticipation, the follow through, the, the focus, the drawing the audience's eye. He's He was brilliant at that. One other thing I want. Uh, it's been a while, Dave, since you recorded <laughs> one of these. <laughs> what, one other thing I wanted to bring up as far as Charlie Chaplin is concerned is, um, I guess, as the Tramp character developed through mm-hmm. several films, Uh, This is another quote from Wikipedia. Chaplin also began to alter his screen persona, which had attracted some criticism at Keystone for its, quote, mean, crude, and brutish nature. Interesting. The character became more gentle and romantic. Hmm. You don't say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's almost like he started out more abrasive and then later became uh, a little bit more lovable. And uh, the word pathos comes up a lot when I read about Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, I think that's a tale as old as time. It happens to Ernest, it happens to Mickey Mouse, it happens to Kermit the Frog. Yeah. It happens yeah. to a lot of characters. Will any Sometimes of those characters okay. come up later in Probably. this discussion? <laughs> uh, but yeah, anything else to say about Charlie Chaplin? Everyone should watch him. Yeah, seriously, just go. Like, just go watch Charlie Chaplin. Um, yeah, it's it's. 
I find that Chapwin films kind of come and go on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's just like a rights thing or whatever, but yeah, definitely check him out. He's my favorite comedian of that era. Yeah. That's when I watched it. I go, wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. And as we said before, it just like, I feel like it will hold up forever. Yep. It's like, it's kind of incredible. Yeah. Um, doing this research made me kind of want to do like a whole bunch of more reading about Charlie Chaplin, just about like how influential he was in the early development of the film industry and uh, also how kind of crazy perfectionist he was. He that would, doesn't surprise me at all. The way that he would make his like films. Like I said, this is deliberate. These are deliberate focused decisions. Like it the, takes physical control. The gags in his films were just kind of like, they would sort of like improv and like kind of fi- find the the groove and like if something wasn't working he'd sometimes have to reshoot things a bunch sure. and just very he knew you had to sell the gag yeah if you don't land it if you don't hit that punchline correctly it's not funny well and sometimes what works on paper doesn't work on, on screen film, yep. or vice versa yeah 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 they both knew that so. <laughs> you're doing the eyebrow thing again and i can't really interpret <laughs> they don't know what it looks like <laughs> i know it's kind of the did it face but it's also kind of like you're sort of a proud parent when it comes to Ernest, I think. Does that make any sense? Yeah. You're just like, sure. yeah, that's my baby. <laughs> he did uh, it. Cool. He did do it. So let's uh, let's hop back in the time machine and head to our next okay. our next era. That's the TARDIS. Oh, no. <laughs> that was not bad, actually. <laughs> next era to go through is the mid-20th century. And as we get more towards the time of Ernest, the eras will sort of condense into, let's say, a decade chunk. Okay. But, um, ah, yes. So there are more analogs as time goes on because there's more media as time goes on. Exactly oh, right. Oh, lordy lord. Exactly. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So this oh, is goodness. why my this is why my research was um, interesting. Uh, like let's a, say a countless, uh, interminable. Like we didn't get through everything we wanted to watch. Oh yeah. Could have no. watched fifty more movies. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Almost oh, did the Abner Melvin. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, though, as with, you know what, it reminds me of the ads. Like, we'll never see all the earnest ads. There will always be more. We'll never be able to get through all of these lists, but at least we can pick up on some things. And uh, as far as mid-20th century goes, obviously, this is when television starts to become the the new hot commodity. (laughs) I wish I could describe the gesture and face you made. I was really hoping that was the Um, reaction it would get. (laughs) Um... I'm not going to bother. So in this era, it's largely television, but there's still some film stuff. Hmm. Uh, The one that comes up a lot. Mostly television. Mostly television. One thing that's come up a lot that's That's sort of- very interesting. On the- can be considered both film and television, depending on how old you are, uh, is Looney Tunes. Okay. And Looney Tunes have come up a lot in our discussions, brought up both by our guest Chris in the jail episode and Nelson in the Scared Stupid episode. That's right. Daffy Uh, Duck. Daffy Duck comparisons have been made. I rewatched Duck Amuck, which is- one of my favorite cartoons. I think the reason that Daffy gets compared to Ernest is, again, the lack of control over his surroundings and the struggle to survive Absolutely. The, his interactions with the world. Shoot me again! I enjoy it! I love the smell of burnt feathers and gunpowder and cordite! I'm an elk! Shoot me! Go on! It's elk season! I'm a fiddler crab! Why don't you shoot me? It's fiddler crab season! Yes, and actually nowhere is that more blatant than in, in Duck Amok. Yeah, he has from, no control from, whatsoever. From 1953. <laughs> it's weird to watch. Like, I haven't seen Duck Amok in probably like Describe ten, it for our listeners years. who have not seen Duck Amok, so, the premise. So I'm just remembering, we should have said at the beginning, like, this is just going to be an episode full of massive spoilers. Oh, yes. Spoiler alert for everything. Yes, this is an episode full <laughs> of massive spoilers. So if you don't want to be spoiled for any of these things, even though you don't know what they are yet, turn back now. Oh, just turn back when you hear their name or fast forward. Or yes. <laughs> Jump to this time in the time code. Uh, Duck Amok. Spoilers for Duck Amok. <laughs> yes. Duck Amok is 
how do you even describe it? It's a it, short cartoon. It's a short cartoon. It's kind of like a meta cartoon. When yeah. I when I rewatched it the other day, I had a moment of earnesty. Did I get the right film? Because the title card is Three Musketeers theme. Right, right. And I forgot that this is how the cartoon and it starts. Takes you out. Exactly. I was like, wait, is this is was I gonna get throw out one? Stand back, Musketeers! They shall sample my blade. Hmm? Now I but haven't then, seen Duck and Muck in a while, but to my memory, it's that. The artist's hand, yes, in the cart suddenly enters the cartoon. Well, it's starts- not the hand; it's just like oh, the artist tools, like okay. a pencil or a brush or that kind of a thing. Yeah, but as an animator, it's one of the few cartoons where like the animator is shown. Yes, and uh, I should also point out that this cartoon in particular is directed by Chuck Jones, who is my favorite of the Looney Tunes animators. Legendary. Yep, he's uh, he's come up before. We talked about him when we talked about the sort of style of earnest joke telling, where it's setting up an expectation and then subverting it. Oh yeah, he was great at that. Yes, Wiley yes. Coyote. He does that a lot. With exactly Wiley right. Exactly right. Chuck Jones um, is amazing. We've talked about Wiley Coyote before, like mm-hmm. Redneckus Americanus, that kind of like. <laughs> Stupid fake science. Well, Wally Coyote, Ernest would do a lot of those Wally Coyote esque anticipations. Yes. Where, like, when he's about to run, he, like, puts his arms out, like, to. Yep. to you can't see what Aaron's telegraph doing. Telegraph that he's about to run forward. But you can picture it if you've ever seen an Ernest movie. If you've seen Slam Dunk Ernest. Yes. And Ernest puts his arm out, like, he's going to run, and then it zips away, mm-hmm. and it's just smoke. <laughs> That's a, why he does the anticipation, so you cloud. realize that he ran, because you don't see him run. It's too fast. Yep. That's the brilliance. But yeah, Duck and Monk is just wonderful. It's just the unseen animator screwing with Daffy Duck for seven and a half minutes. Like redrawing his costume and stuff. Changing the background. Daffy is constantly complaining that there's no scenery or that it's the wrong scenery. Mm -hmm. He gets redrawn into some sort of weird alien creature thing. (laughs) And even just some of Daffy's like, the things he says are just sort of like more eloquent and flowery than I remembered or there's just like phrases that he's very proud always trying to come off as more important than he is yes yes how would you describe that would you say it was like bravado (laughs) yeah I would say it was bravado but it's like overcompensating yes it's it's really sad with Daffy (laughs) yes it is Um, (laughs) because he gets angry it frustrates him like very visibly he does I would say Daffy is definitely an angry character character. yeah Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I love that he says is something happens in the the cartoon that he gets messed around with Mm -hmm. and he says quote thanks for the sour persimmons cousin (laughs) (laughs) and picture that with like the daffy duck picture that with the daffy duck lisp who just like thanks for the sour persimmons cousin and i was like that's Uh, wonderful yeah (laughs) someone wrote that down the sour persimmons cousin (laughs) i'm gonna have to start saying that yeah Along with there's nothing in that tree for me. <laughs> yep. So that's Looney Tunes. What else is of that era? Let's see. Hmm. This is the mid-century. Mid-20th this is mid-century, yes. A couple of things that came up from our listeners. Characters from the Andy Griffith show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big watcher of it, but I've seen a bunch. And you are more familiar with the Andy Griffith show than I am. Okay. So I may lean on you a little bit more than usual, but there was two characters that came up in particular. Thanks for the sour persimmons, cousin. <laughs> So a comment from Timothy Fisher on our Facebook page. Uh, He says, well, there's Ernest T. Bass from The Andy Griffith Show. I'd say Ernest P. Worrell is about halfway between Ernest T. Bass and Gomer Pyle. Interesting. Yes. That's, yeah, okay, yes. 
I think I will soft agree only because no one compares to Ernest for me. I'm like, yes, that plus all these other things that make him better. But yes, <laughs> that's completely fair. You're we, doing you're doing a I'm nurse St. Cloud point as you as you <laughs> no, discuss. I'm not this. angry, I'm just emphasizing. There's only two people who can combine to be Ernest P. Worrell. It's Ernest T. Bass and Gomer Pop. No, that's not enough people. It's not complex <laughs> enough. Right. No, that's that's a really good point. Well, we did watch a bit of Ernest T. Bass before recording because I was like, Ernest T. Bass who the heck is he? Is that I didn't know who he was and I've seen a significant amount of Andy Griffith's show and I have never seen him and it turns out he was only in five episodes and that's why I've never seen him. And yet he is one of the most memorable characters, apparently, because people remember him. He's definitely come up before in our conversations. And... Well, he's dressed similarly to Ernest. He has a vest and a cap. Yes, the wardrobe is where I would say a lot of and, the similarity and, is. And the Ernest initial. Yes, Ernest, middle initial, last yeah. name. But yeah, we just watched uh, some clips of Ernest T. Bass. He is definitely an abrasive character. He's like, a, he's hillbilly, but he's to the point of hobo-ish. Yes, He's that's kind true. of obnoxious. He has this tendency to throw rocks with notes on them through windows, but there's apparently. Stand also... aside, deputy. I'm going to break that glass. No, you ain't. Yes, I ain't. No, you ain't. Now you drop that rock and you get over here. <laughs> But there's also a contradiction to that because in other episodes... It turns out he can't read or write. Yes. Yeah, that's not... (laughs) (laughs) The continuity is flawed there. Yes. But hey, he made a mark. So but there's that. There's the dress and then... I think just, you know, in the ways that some people might classify Ernest as a redneck, Mm -hmm. I would not disagree, but I I have a lot to say about that. But anyways, in the way that, you know, some people might classify Ernest as a redneck, um, Ernest T. Bass is sort of a, I think, a little more stereotypical idea. He's a little bit more of a caricature. Yeah, he's like a caricature of this killbilly, you know, uh, outsider in their Mayberry society. Understanding what he was saying, even. Yeah. Like he was exaggerated to Well, yeah, he had a very, very, yeah, thick accent. One other thing about Ernest T. Bass from Justin's book, quote, Although Chaplin had provided Jim with much of his slapstick inspiration, Mm -hmm. some fans thought the Ernest T. Bass character from The Andy Griffith Show had provided the blueprint. Those fans may have been residents of North Carolina, home to both the fictional Mayberry and one of Ernest's first clients, Pine State Dairies. Oh, okay. Although both characters share the same name and reflect hillbilly stereotypes, Ernest T. Bass was definitely not the inspiration. And I will say, Ernest T. Bass is very different from Ernest P. Worrell in the sense that Ernest T. Bass is kind of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> He's not the nicest person. Of. He In one one episode, we see that he, he smashes like a flower pot over a man's head because he's dancing with a woman that he doesn't want the guy to dance yeah, with. Yeah, Andy it's, and It's someone... a little alarming. And then, <laughs> and then a woman yells at him and he attacks the woman and people have to hold him back. And it's a yes. little crazy. It's him, that animal, that creature. Creature. Who are you calling a creature? Well, Andy and another character try to like turn him into a like upstanding gentleman. Like a My Fair Lady sort kind of. Kind of, yeah. And it, it doesn't work it's to say the least. It's a little disturbing. But on the other side, Gomer Pyle, yeah. the other half of that hybrid, mm-hmm. Gomer Pyle's a sweetie pie. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a really nice person. He's super optimistic, a little clueless, but he wants to help. And, and he's... He's got a sincerity to him. Yeah, I think... I don't know a lot about Gomer Pyle. I've seen a little bit of his own spinoff show, and that's interesting. They had a spinoff show. I so forgot he was about a popular that. Popular yeah. enough character. He would usually like cause trouble for other characters unintentionally. Yep. And kind of the destructive force in their world, while also being completely innocent and hapless. And you know, I didn't. Oh, sorry about. It. Like he didn't mean to do that. Right. But <laughs> you know, he creates I like your impression. havoc. 
but he's he's sweet and dutiful and dedicated and so i could see that those two things intersecting and yep. creating a sort of yeah it's not a bad way to describe Ernest as a cross between those two yeah i'm going to press on because we're still in the honorable mention oh, section gosh, and there's a sorry. lot to go through i'm going to try to <laughs> okay. i'm going to try to like guide us All through right, some right. of this stuff uh, vroom vroom some other analogs 1960s batman Okay. We, talked about, okay. we talked about that in jail also in the sense of not only some days you just can't get rid of a bomb, right. but also Classic. the title sequence from the movie is very like kind of 60s pop arty with well, like, like splashy bright colors and things like that. Effect. Yeah, okay. Justin's book talks about an article from the Orlando Sentinel from the early 1990s and this idea of the character curse. The character curse. Pull I think up. I can guess what that is. Is it's it when an actor is too closely associated with yes. the character? Yes, okay. and the other, so the character curse was this idea put forth in this article that like certain actors get tied to certain characters like sure. Paul Rubens and Pee Wee, Adam West and Batman. Henry Winkler and the Fonz on Happy Days. Uh-huh. Robin Williams and Mork, what? also from the Happy Days and that a spin-off. That didn't stick. Robin Williams and Mork. No, and what Justin talks about in the book is that in some cases, those actors had time away from those characters to sort of branch out and do other things. Right. But yes, so 1960s Batman, I think there's a clear comparison you can make just in sort of like the cartooniness. Mm-hmm. Uh, also had Eartha Kitt. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is wonderful. And she's great in everything. I don't know. I can't do it. I don't know. That's don't a know drum roll, Vern. That's a drum roll, Vern. <laughs> so you think Adam West had the character curse? Is what you're saying? I think so. I think he... Uh, He'll always be he 1960s Batman. He'll always be Batman. Batman. You're yes. right. And another thing from the same century that we talked about and we watched a little bit of was Superman from 1978. Oh, yeah. Or the same part of the century, I mean. Uh, yeah. That's, again, another one that kept coming from Justin Lloyd where he kind of saw his uncle... He would kind of mentally compare Superman and Clark Kent and Jim Varney and Ernest. That's kind of a Jim Varney analog. Yeah, more than for sure. Ernest. I really got what he was talking about when we went back and rewatched Superman. Yeah, the contrast between the Clark Kent body language and then Superman's it is really reminiscent of the contrast between Ernest's body language and Jim Varney's. Jim yeah. Varney was very kind of that poised, mm-hmm, like relaxed mm-hmm. presence, and yep. then Ernest is flailing around all over the place and sort of like gangly, and kind and of like hunched. slouchy. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, there's that one scene in uh, the first Superman where. Uh, it's a scene late in the movie where Clark Kent's in Lois's apartment and she's in like another room. Oh, right, right. After they, he flies her around on the yes. state and she she says a song. <laughs> she does say a song. <laughs> you it, know what I'm talking about. Yes. Here I am like a kid out of school holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. It's that moment where it's like you can he's tell- He's in her he- living room. He's in the Clark Kent- Costume. Yeah. <laughs> the Clark Kent costume. Yeah, you're exactly. right. Exactly. Yeah. And then he takes off his glasses. Yeah, there's like a moment where it's like, oh, is he gonna tell her that he's Superman? And his yeah. like his posture just like completely it straight. Morphs. It's it's it, kind of a wonderful it's moment. It's a beautiful moment. It's a smooth like yep. morph into his just it's just the shoulders go back and all of a sudden there's Superman. Yeah. Like yeah. in Clark Kent's suit. Yeah. And you know, you know, oh, he's just become Superman. He's gonna tell her. But then he decides not to. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a beautiful acting moment. There's similar acting moments in later analogs that I'm going to have to bring up. <laughs> and I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I have no clue. Okay, good. Um, let's see. I'm kind of skipping around. So Still in the mid-century. Mm-hmm. Are these still honorable mentions? These are still honorable mentions. Oh, gosh. Mentions. Let's, let's get to let's the just, main. Yeah, let's just... Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, and this was something that was recommended by uh, a listener, was uh, Rocky Balboa. From the first Rocky movie in particular. I like that. Um, So I was watching this movie 
just because I never seen it like maybe six months ago. I have never seen it. Let me say this. I've done this podcast with you for like three years. Yes. A long time. You often (laughs) say 21. You often say this thing where you have this sense that you're watching other movies and you kind of wish that Ernest would show up or you feel like he's going to show up. Mm -hmm. Rocky was an interesting watching experience because as as I was going through the movie, I was like, huh. Stallone is doing a lot of monologuing in this movie. And then about halfway through, I noticed that he would constantly say, know what I mean? Really? Yeah. Let me read. I have <laughs> I have part of, I don't know that I would say the first Rocky is a great movie. I understand whoa, whoa, its whoa, place whoa. in, whoa, whoa. in like cinema history. Isn't it iconic? Isn't it it's a beloved like, American it's, icon? It's definitely iconic okay. for sure. But it's just like, it's it's more of a talky movie than I would expect. Good. I think I kind of assumed that because it is so beloved. For all intents and purposes, Adrian is Rocky's Vern. What? You talk about the love interest? Yes. Yeah, so the love oh, interest is, interesting. The, is Adrian. Uh, we should put Vern in the love episode. Just to- that's, <laughs> that's, I thought about that. But like Adrian <laughs> is like- Cloud forever. For most of the, of the movie, mm-hmm. a- Adrian is just sort of like very quiet and reserved and sort of shy. Uh, so it, it turns into a lot of Rocky talking a lot, and she interjects like every you know third paragraph or something. But mm. this is this is one little thing that I'll read. I won't do a Stallone impression. Okay. I'll spare you that. <laughs> this is Rocky. Uh, he's monologuing as he's walking down the street. Okay. I'm at least half a bum, <laughs> but I'll tell you something. Worst thing about fighting is the morning after. You know. I know. Yeah, the morning after a fight, you're like a large wound. You know what I mean? Yes. Sometimes I got pains all over me. I feel like calling a taxi to take me from the bed into the bathroom. Your hair hurts, your eyes hurt, your face is busted up, your hands are swollen. Look at this face, 64 fights. Look at that nose. You see that nose? That nose hasn't ever been broken. I had guys busting on it. I had guys chewing on it, twisting and punching. I mean, whack, boom. These guys are hitting my nose all the time. Never (laughs) broke it. I'm very proud of that. That's rare. That's... That's heartwarming. <laughs> there's just like so many. <laughs> That's so charming. There's so many weird moments of just like. Man, I got to watch this movie. A lot of these. <laughs> oh, man. A lot of these analogs. One thing that occurred to me that came up a lot was that it felt like it was less like a film and more like theater. Like it felt okay. very yes. performative and like theatrical and, and stagey. Exaggerated, but not to the point where you don't believe it, but that yeah. it really comes across clearly. For sure. And like there's no reason that this monologue had to happen like on a street in Philadelphia or whatever, but it does. And it might as well have been on a stage somewhere, you know? It's it's very yes. bizarre. Yeah. Um, but I like that. Oh, well, for mean, sure. Just really getting into the character's head and letting you know them and the story mattering more because you know them. Yeah. One of our listeners, Landon Musashi, also suggested Rocky Balboa, specifically from the first movie. And they said, only in this sense, both characters are pure hearted, hmm. want to do the right thing and treat people right. And they are constantly put down, are super underdogs, and no one really takes them seriously. And they have to rise above everyone else's put downs and disbelief to find something inside themselves and transcend into something greater. Erin is, is about to cry. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, that's so it continues i really think of scared stupid i mean ernest saved the world in that one and overcame a community legacy rocky had a community that treated him terribly and doubted himself but found a way to hold his own against apollo creed on national television dang yep wow 
Now I feel really bad that I haven't seen Rocky. <laughs> it's okay. No, if, if anything, that's amazing. If anything, this episode can be a, a guideline for, it's almost like the, the further reading in the back of like a, a book's the annotations. jacket. Yeah, like <laughs> if you like this book, you may also be interested in. Ernest Scared Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you like Rocky, you'll love Ernest Scared Stupid. Okay, well, before we get into the main analogs for mid-century. Are you serious? Yes. There's. Come on, I thought we were at least at Maine with Rocky. I mean, we could consider no, it. No, 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 no. The last one. Did That's you want an to talk... honorable mention for sure. Do you want to talk about Columbo? Oh, Columbo. I don't really know much about Columbo, but I think you do. And we watched a little bit of Columbo. his. Yeah. Of, of... <laughs> is, that, is that like a semi-impression? Yeah. Uh, we watched a little bit of his detective style before, before this. Do you want to talk about Columbo? Well, he is very sexy. Like mm. just in the handsome. I get it. Secret hottie, you know, in that sense. Yeah. But <laughs> mainly Columbo. Well, somebody else brought up Columbo. Yes. It was one of our listeners. Yes, a comment from Jared Hodgson. Uh, a few detectives come to mind, one that we will get to in a second, and Columbo, but I'm leaning more on Columbo. Both have a disarming presence that leads people to underestimate their abilities. Ernest and Columbo succeed from their unique abilities, aided by wary allies and bewildered antagonists. I feel like our listeners are getting better at this podcast than we are. <laughs> Um, like that means, wow! I mean, that's that's very well put. Um, spot on. Yes, it's exactly that. Well, what is going on? You want to get the, the security guards? Find out who let this I man can't out. tell Would you. Would you mind? Very am, much, sir. We're making this disturbance. I really can't tell you. My name is Columbo. I'm from the police. Columbo's disarming presence is. That's what he uses. That's like his secret weapon. Sorry, I'm just thinking that like our <laughs> listeners, they they are what we grow beyond. It is the burden of all masters. Continue. I mean, yeah, Columbo and his trench coat and his like messy hair and mm-hmm. he's kind of a little bit smaller stature. He's definitely got like from what I've seen of Columbo, he has like a cartoon wardrobe. Yeah. He's constantly in that same outfit. He always looks the same. Yes. So in that sense, yes. he's a cartoon character. Yes. And he comes in and he's so <laughs> smart and he knows he's smart. Yes. Right. And he lets the people he's interrogating, he's going to solve a murder, and he lets them make all these assumptions like they know what this guy is yep. without having met him. Lieutenant, you're priceless. You're a gem. You're a little flawed and you're not too bright, but you're one of a kind. They're kind of like, oh, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing. Like, yeah. I'm going to get yeah, away like, with this. Who is this? And he just fakes them out. He plays them the whole time, pretending that he has no idea what's going on and pretending that he's not catching on to anything. It's kind of a con. It's a big con. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant, do you happen to know your IQ? Mine, sir? Oh, no, sir. No, they took it in the army, but they never told us. I'm certainly not in your league, sir. And he's just so like, oh, I just have a question. Like, I don't understand this. Like, maybe you can help me understand this because it's confusing me. And then, then, like, that's how he interrogates people. And he gets them to reveal more and more and more. And since they're not really scared of him and they're not taking seriously, they drop all this information. Disarming. Yeah, exactly. And that's how he solves murders. And that's how he interrogates people. And he tricks them every time. And he just knows. He just goes in and he lets them. He lets them assume he doesn't know what he's doing. And he takes advantage of it. Columbo's like a, the, the earnest that has figured it out. Mm. It's so good. It feels a little bit, and just go with this. Okay. It feels a little bit like Auntie Nelda, where it's like, this <laughs> This always works. It's so like unexpected and like, yeah. like, I don't know how to like interpret this, and but then it like, it turns it around and it gets him what he wants. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. And he'll he'll just say these little remarks. He'll, he'll like go off on tangents oh, we were, about we were his wife. I was watching that clip and, and I was immediately drawn in. I was yeah. like, it was like a seven minute video maybe, yeah. but I was like, all right, I see what this guy's doing. And he has a catchphrase kind of, which is like, oh, one more thing. This is like <laughs> he the said thing that a thousand times. The thing he drops before, like he lets the murderer <laughs> yeah. think that he's done with them and they got away with it, and he goes, oh, one more thing. Ah, one more thing. Oh, doctor. Yes. One more thing. Oh, just one more thing, sir. Oh, one more thing, sir. Uh, we got something else on the gun. Did I mention that? No, you didn't. And the, like, <laughs> his killing blow. This it's... clip that I was watching, he starts in a man's office, starts leaving the office, gets almost to the door of the building, yeah. comes back to the front desk, comes back into the man's office, <laughs> leaves the office again, hangs the out while, in the doorway. Like, talking. Yeah, and it's just like... It's a wonderful performance. He's got them on a string, and they don't even know they're on the string. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Colombo is great. Peter Falk. Yeah, yeah. Peter Falk is dope. Would you say, again, I don't know much about Colombo, would you say Peter Falk is, like, indelibly connected to Colombo? Like, did he do other yes, roles? Okay. I was, yeah. That is also a, maybe a character curse. Interesting, interesting. Although, you know, I hope it didn't hurt Peter Falk too much, because it's a great character. Well, it's a respected character, you know, know what I mean? <laughs> like, in the sense that, you know, oh, that's Pee Wee Herman. Like, yeah. you know, it's not as bad as that. It's like, oh, it's Columbo. Columbo's great. I love Columbo. I will say something about the character curse when we get to the end of this era. I, but for now, let's just get into the main analogs. But I think it's, I think you're right on with talking about Peter Falk in that way. Yes. So the other detective that was brought up by our listener, Jared, is Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther films. Uh, and this is one, this is one that comes up a lot. It does, because they pick the same roles, right? That's, <laughs> that's a, I, I feel like we would pick the same scripts, yes. They would pick the same scripts. So we Jim should say Bar that's from a, yes, explain yeah. what that is. We keep referencing that, and it's a Jim Varney interview about Ernest Goes to Jail, where he yes. talks about Peter Sellers playing multiple characters, yep. and he says, like, I feel like we would choose the same scripts. Yeah, Jim Varney essentially- mocked him for that <laughs> ever since. He prepared for jail by taking inspiration from Inspector Clouseau. I think not only in that sense, but also in the sense that, like, that's a film where he's really playing multiple roles. Yes. Like in the past, he's like- In Ernest Goes to Jail, yeah. He goes into like Auntie Nelda or he goes into Astra Clement, but those for all intents and purposes are still Ernest. Yes. Felix Nash is a totally different human yeah. being. That's something that Peter Sellers did a lot. He would play multiple he characters. He kind of brought it back. Yes. Yeah. He would play multiple characters in the same movie. It started he's... to happen a lot in the 90s for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> but- We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, not... Pink Panther. I'm not sure what to say about Pink Panther. Did you see it? I did. I saw the Pink Panther. What'd you think? It is a unbelievably slow movie. Pretty pretty boring, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but uh, now let me say this. Say it. If you love the Pink Panther, that's awesome. There's no reason you shouldn't love the Pink Panther. I just didn't love the Pink Panther, and that's it. Agreed. There's nothing wrong with loving the Pink Panther. And what I was gonna say is Or Inspector Clouseau. That being said, I understand where the comparison comes from. Yeah, like, me too. He's got he's I Again, like it's we, you know what podcast you're listening to. We love Jim Varney, mm -hmm. and I don't know that they are. I don't know that I would put them in the same league. Okay, here's my fuego take. Sure, Jim Varney is way better than <laughs> Peter Sellers. <laughs> Sorry, is that a generally accepted expression? Yeah. That's, okay, Jim Varney is way better than Peter Sellers. I do, I mean, listen, I don't disagree. But, Again, you, can't. You, you know, you, you can't. know what you know what, you know what podcast, podcast you're listening, listening to. to. I mean, I was just like the student surpassed the master. But, yeah, you know, I, <laughs> no disrespect, but I see what Peter said. Peter says has that charm, that innocence, that it's, it's sort of not not more not not innocence, but a naivete that he 
exudes. Well, and as far as the Pink Panther series is concerned, I think that's analogous to the Ernest series where it starts out more realistic, let's say. That's true. And it gets very cartoony later on. And Inspector Clouseau starts out as more of a supporting character and then becomes the main character in future movies. And by the way, just as an aside, when I was watching Inspector Clouseau, I realized that that's what Inspector Gadget was this whole time, and I didn't know, and I love Inspector Gadget. Mm -hmm. So big props to Peter Sellers and Inspector Clouseau for inspiring Inspector Gadget, one of my favorite cartoons as a child. Yeah. Um, Not have one without the other. A couple of things that I'll just say about Peter Sellers, the person. This is a quote from him from an interview in Playboy, of all things, in 1962, talking about character work. Quote, I start with the voice. I find out how the character sounds. It's through the way that he speaks that I found out the rest about him. After the voice comes the looks of the man. I do a lot of drawings of the character I play, and then I get together with the makeup man, and we sort of transfer my drawings onto my face. An involved process. After that, I establish how the character walks. Very important, the walk. And then, (laughs) suddenly, something strange happens. The person takes over. The man you play begins to exist. Yes! And that just made me think about how we've talked in the past about Ernest as an actor and how he doesn't really play Auntie Nelda. He he just becomes becomes Auntie Nelda. It's almost like he got into some sort of- walk. Yeah, absolutely. The high-stepped run, the the slouchy kind of like sad walk. very deliberate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's consistent. The walk is very important. I agree the walk is very important. I've had somebody tell me that in animation, when you animate a character's walk, because the walk has all the character's personality in it. Oh, yeah. Like the the character's walk- can kind of set the tone for everything that they do. And like that's the first step in defining the character's physicality. So walks are very important. Yep. Animation tip from Anim- Ernest Goes to Podcast. Walks are very important. <laughs> and Peter Sellers. This is something we can get into more. Now we- I feel bad for saying that, that Giovanni was better, but not really. <sighs> he took what Peter Sellers did and he did more. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I don't think we can understate the influence that um, Peter Sellers had on Jim Varney. Just because one other thing we know from The Importance of Being Earnest, the life of actor Jim Varney, I'm going to bring this book up a lot. Jim Varney was actually trying to get a second show with CBS going around the time of Hey Vern. um, Oh, really? Where he would star as a non-earnest Inspector Clouseau type character. See, that would... Da, 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 Inspector Varney. Da, <laughs> da, da. Uh, no. This is a quote from Jim Varney. Sure. It's going to be a little bit Rockford Files, a little Barnaby Jones, and a little Barney Fife. <laughs> okay, Barnaby Fife. Barnaby. Barnaby Fife. That's the hybrid. Barnaby. Barnaby Fife. <laughs> Barney Fife. All right. There you go. Another Andy Griffith character. Um, Bar- Barney's kind of earnesty, too, in that he's earnest with an E. With an EA. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. No, when we were watching Fries Hard. When we were watching the Andy Tries Griffith really show earlier, I was like, Oh, I forgot how much I love Don Knotts. Don Knotts is great. He's just like wonderful yep. in everything. Oh, interesting. I wish he had a working title. <laughs> Wait, a working title. I wish Jim Varney had a working title for his Oh, for the show. show. Yeah. Yeah, that we could refer to. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. I'm sure there's Inspector a joke Varney. there. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is an interesting way to get into the next analog. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the way that I first learned who Don Knotts was the way that I first learned who Jim Neighbors was, it is through their appearances on The Muppet Show. That is how I've learned. Okay. That's how I learned as a child who Uh all of the stars of the late 70s were because of repeats of The Muppet Show on TNT. Gotcha. And I think, you know, we always talk about what is it with Jim's? What is it with Jim's? I think Jim Henson and The Muppets are a good Jim Varney and Ernest analog. Really? Jim Varney and Ernest? Let me explain why. Okay. So this has come up a couple of times before. 
Tom, our guest in Haven Disc Two, right. compared some of Ernest's uh, material with things like the Wilkins coffee ads. That, right, the that super violent, like I'm going to kill you, yeah. shoot you in the head. <laughs> you don't drink Wilkins. Yes. People that don't drink Wilkins get shot. Yeah, basically. <laughs> with this camera, I shoot pictures of people who don't drink Wilkins coffee. I'm ready. Shoot. Anybody else? Well, I think I think you put it most succinctly where when you said, "Use this product, or I will murder you." <laughs> yep. Things just seem to happen to people who don't drink Wilkins. But yeah, so Jim Henson started out in local television, advertising. doing advertising. Um, he made the the very interesting and unusual decision to always fight to keep the rights to the characters. So even if like a character As- that he created was used to promote a specific product, he would still own that character. Perhaps he learned that from Walt Disney. I wouldn't be surprised. Because Walt Disney had some problems when yeah. Oswald the Rabbit turned That's out right. to not be owned by him. That's right. And actually, I learned all of this, or I learned a lot of this from a book that I was reading about Jim Henson and about his business career specifically. It's a book mm-hmm. called Make Art, Make Money. Wow. Uh, with no comma. It was very interesting. And there's a lot of Disney comparisons in that. But back to Jim Henson. So he started in the ad world. He would sell the same commercials in different local markets. Nice. Sounds kind of familiar. Brilliant. And a thing we learned from Justin's book is that Cardin and Cherry would not accept a client offer for earnest commercials if the budget or creative freedom was lacking. And that's exactly like Jim Henson. He would always try to like fight for commercials where he could like do his own weird yeah. thing. And it's just- Because you know what works. Exactly right. So moving from ads into the world of film and television, and specifically becoming basically pigeonholed as a children's entertainer, like doing shows or things that are perceived as not quite for like the adult audience. Did people or... really think that about the Muppet Show though yes. in the seventies? Yes, and absolutely. That was for kids? Mm-hmm. That's why the Muppet I Show. I always found that so adult when I was a kid. Oh, it I absolutely is. Never felt is. like it was for me. Like, and that's kind of why I liked watching it. It was like, I, I felt like I was watching something like above me Certainly. that I wasn't quite understanding, but I felt enriched by watching it. Well, I think if you asked Jim Henson or the Muppet crew, the Muppet Brain Trust, you might say, yeah. uh, they would say that their material was for everybody and not in a like watered down, we have to hit every demographic way, but just in a way that was kind of universal and like, we're going to welcome you into our weird world. Um, so would you even say that the Muppet universe is analogous to the Ernest universe? I would actually, because if you look at the Muppet movies specifically, those are the same characters, but there's no, no continuity. continuity. That's in right. The Great Muppet Caper, I constantly compare to Ernest Goes to Jail, just because it's like every once in a while the movie stops and there's just some gags and then the movie continues. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's mostly it's, it's fun and mostly nonsensical. Yeah. yeah. And I compared Ernest Goes to Jail to a Muppet movie. Yeah, absolutely. And that it was a bunch of gags and nothing about the story that really resonated, but that's kind of okay too. But so in terms of The Muppet Show, Jim Henson struggled to get that made for years in the mm. US because people were like, oh, puppets are puppets. for kids. Yep. And so he- I, I th- know what this is. Ex- I know what this is without <laughs> having seen it. Yep. Yep. To the extent that he called one of the first Muppet pilots, the Muppets colon sex and violence. <laughs> um that's brilliant. So yeah, uh, so brilliant. I think in the same way that Jim Varney got tied to Ernest, whether he, whether he liked it or not. That's why it's brilliant. Yeah, oh yeah. Not just because someone said sex. It the, annoys me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But I think in the same way that like Jim Varney and Ernest, like those were like inexorably tied, I think Jim Henson- Oh yeah, and but that's his legacy. Oh, it absolutely Bruh. is. Oh, and it's Jim Varney's legacy. <laughs> but uh, I think because of the success of Sesame Street, because yeah. Jim Henson was so good at that, it tied him inexorably to children's entertainment. Uh, Because Jim Varney was so good at Ernest, it It tied him inexorably to Ernest. And to children's entertainment. And to children's entertainment, yeah. Honestly. 
And actually, I was watching a interview with Frank Oz on Star Talk recently, yeah. uh, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Frank Oz is brilliant. I love Frank Oz. He directed my favorite movie in the whole world, Little Shop of Horrors. I love Frank Oz. Continue. Yes. No, uh, I agree with all of what you just said. <laughs> so there's this interview that Neil deGrasse Tyson did with Frank Oz. It really made me think of Ernest because this is, I'm paraphrasing and maybe okay. maybe you can find the actual clip. Frank Oz was talking about how he doesn't really get recognized because he's just a man right. and his characters are what what resonate with people. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And he was basically- well, he's like under a thing. Yeah. You, know, you can't see him. And he was basically or saying- behind a camera. The point is to not do a good job with a character or a great job. My job is not to do a good job. My job is not to do a great job. My job is to have it transcend. It should be transcendent. So that which I'm working transcends that which it is. So you don't want someone to say, you did a good job uh, at that what would you be did. The wor- that would be the worst thing in the world. You want someone to say... No, I don't want somebody to say. I want someone to believe. And if that's not earnest, I don't know what is. Exactly. Like, there are some things I watch and I go, man, that actor's doing a great job. That's and exactly what he's saying. If you think about the fact that there's yeah. a process, then he's failed. And that, then that's always where the actor falls short for me, where I can still see them working. Yep. When they transform totally and they become real to me, that's when I feel like they've really succeeded. And that's what Jim Varney did with Ernest. And that's what some of the later Ernest analogs that we'll get to also oh, do. Oh, yes. Okay. But so yeah. analogs also in the sense that the actor totally, they created this character so richly that you believe that character is real. And we talked about that with Justin when we were in Kentucky. He was saying that... Like, questioning what is the measure of success. In, is it, for an actor, yeah. Exactly. And I think you could definitely make the argument that making everybody believe that a fictional you character is a audience. real person. <laughs> yes. Like, that's amazing and yes. incredible. And is, I Especially think... Especially when they're so different from yourself. Absolutely. And I think it's very... And cartoony. It's not something that gets thought about or discussed often, I think. Because I feel like those actors aren't taken seriously because they only did this. Exactly right. Exactly right. But they only did that because that's all you could see them as because you believed it so much. Yeah. And I think that's how the parallel between Jim Varney and Jim Henson comes Mm. into my brain. I mean, on top of that, you know. I mean, Jim Henson did do other, a lot of creature stuff. For sure. I mean, you can compare like. passion. (laughs) You can compare like, I don't know, Dark Crystal and Dr. Otto kind of. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I could see that. And then, of course, there's like, you know. The Muppets and Ernest are cartoons that exist in the real world. Mm-hmm. They both have that mix of comedy, innocence, and sincerity. They're both acquired by Disney. <laughs> They're both acquired by Disney. That's also true. Uh, so yeah, so that is Jim Henson, and that is the mid-20th mid century. <laughs> do we have commercial breaks on this show? Is that is that something we do? After these analogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. back. All right, moving on to <laughs> the... 1980s, the Ernest Epoch begins. The 1980s. Yep. Ooh, our era. That's right. Um, and also the- Well, and the 90s, but that's when we were- And also- Anyways. <laughs> also. Also the era of what I'm going to call the advertising icon. Really? Like, well, this was a time- The 80s. You're right, because the 90s got really trippy. It did. And they were like, hey, look at all this surrealism, advertising, We bought kids. a video toaster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look at all this cutout animation. But like, the 80s was really the era of advertising icons, and particularly with human characters. Like, I can think of, you know- Yes. There's like- Where's the beef? The trickster rabbit. Well, sure. But like, I can think of like cartoons and stuff from earlier eras. Yes, but yes. But the only human I can think of is like Mr. Whipple, who tells you not to squeeze the Charmin. Like, other than that, no one was really a person, like, or a human character. <sighs> but then in the 80s, you get like Joe Azuzu, who would- Who's that? Who's he, who, who's that? He would, uh, it was David Leisure, and he would sell, he would basically lie to people about cars. Each Isuzu pickup is built tough, so you can drive it forever. 
Um, oh. You have uh, John Rashida Jr., who is the Micro Machine Man and the oh, Federal great. Express guy. Yes. You have Clara Peller, who you just alluded to, the Where's the Where's Beef the woman. Beef? Who, while not really a character per se, like it was just a really iconic delivery. Exactly caught on. Um, you have uh, Fred the Dunkin' Donuts guy. I uh, don't remember that. Time to make the donuts. I have no memory of this. Well, he was in Fred the Dunkin' Donuts guy was in a bunch of commercials for Dunkin' Donuts starting in the eighties. Time to make the donuts. The donuts. It isn't easy owning a Dunkin' Donuts. Time to make the donuts. Because unlike most supermarkets, we make our donuts fresh day and night. The guys who make supermarket donuts are still in bed. And I went to look him up, and I came across this Mental Floss article and immediately yelled out, you've got to be kidding me, because number one on the list of things, it was like 13 things you might not know about the Dunkin' Donuts guy. Uh And number one, he was a classically trained actor. Of course he was. You know what? Because you need to be good to do this stuff. It's short. It has to hit the mark. From that article. In under 30 seconds. You got to get them. From that article, uh, which is the the actor's name is Michael Vale. Okay. uh, Quote, like many famous pitchmen, Vale's training was as a classical actor. As a student at the dramatic workshop at the New School in New York City, his classmates included Oscar winner Rod Steiger, Oscar nominee Tony Curtis, and Golden Globe nominee Ben Gazzara. Well, you know, a lot of formally trained actors get their start in advertising. That's a lot of actors' first jobs Oh yeah, a commercial. Oh, yeah. And if you're super good, your commercial character might become iconic, and you might get a movie deal. Would you say they might become like a beloved American icon, something like that? Okay. Uh, but yeah, so this is the era of like that sort of advertising character, and I think Ernest the spokesman. fits exactly right. I think Ernest fits right into that. I, I don't say, know that there's any other era he could have been birthed from. That's true. I say the difference between Ernest and these others is that Ernest doesn't stand for any one particular product or brand. That's true. He is a brand that sells other brands. Yeah, yeah, and that ties back into like the Muppets idea, which is why I think he can transcend. Yeah. So a couple of other honorable mentions that I want to go into. Uh, we've talked about WWF wrestlers in the past, specifically <laughs> around- This is your thing. I don't watch wrestling. Not that I wouldn't enjoy it. I just haven't. I'll just say this. Uh, we talked about wrestling in, I think Ernest Goes to School. He talks about his time oh, in the yeah. WWF. And didn't he watch, oh, didn't he watch like um, he watched, um, WrestleMania uh, six or something three times once in slow, slow motion? Yes, yes, yes. Something um, like that. And then of course, Ernest the Furnace. <laughs> right. Um, but wrestling characters are all kind of big cartoons, especially in like the early days of WWF. They're all like these character performances that are like larger than life. But or like, like when he's calling out the troll and Ernest Scared Stupid. Which oh, I. Right, you and me. The end of the line for you, short change. Aloha. Sayonara. El Rancho Grande. Your history, pal. Your Elvis. <laughs> I don't know if I said this in the episode, but I, that basically does feel like uh, yeah. You said it was cutting like he was a promo, cutting a wrestling promo, which is yeah. Cutting a promo in wrestling is basically giving a theatrical monologue where, where you're talking to either a commentator or the camera or somebody off screen, and you're just like <laughs> saying like what you're gonna do to them or like okay. why they should be afraid and that have kind a of thing. Memory of was it Hulk Hogan or who? It was Randy Savage, where he keeps talking about the cream of the crop so, or something. I'm so glad you brought that up because <laughs> it, it, it is on my list. Randy okay. Savage is my favorite wrestler of all time. The yeah. Macho Man Randy Savage. And he's so gifable. He is and so gifable. Just like Ernest. Yes. And he's just, I don't know how to describe it's him the... other than he's just like a wonderful performer of like the most flowery nonsense. He I... sells nonsense. Let me let me read some of the exact thing you're alluding to, the, uh, the cream of the crop uh, okay. promo. So he's talking to Mean Gene Okerlund, who's a commentator. Yeah. And... <laughs> 
Uh, should I try to do a Randy Savage impression? I don't know. If you want. I'm talking about all the way to the top, yeah. I'm justifiably in a position that I'd rather not be in, but the cream <laughs> will rise to the top. Oh, yeah. Macho Madness, yeah, has got more to offer than President Jack Tunney thinks that I got. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you something right now. Cards stacked against the Macho Man Randy Savage in WrestleMania 3. Yeah, let me say it, yeah. Let me say it out loud. And let me point to the president of the World Wrestling Federation. Since the macho man Randy Savage is not happy with your decision, yeah. I am the cream in the World Wrestling Federation. Wait, wait a minute, and there is no doubt about it, yeah. You mean Gene Okerlund. You know that I'm the cream of the crop. No, but what's great about this <laughs> is that he's emphasizing all this. He keeps taking out little packets of cream. <laughs> he's pulling like half and half <laughs> containers out in like a bad magic sort of way. Yeah, he's doing of, like, sleight of the, hand. Yeah, out of nowhere, like a cartoon. He's pulling out these cream cups and he's crushing them, right? No, he's not. He's like throwing them or by putting them in Mean Gene's pocket. Or he puts. <laughs> all right, he puts one in the He puts pocket. one on his head and starts to like dance around and it falls off. And without missing a beat, he goes, on balance, off balance, doesn't matter. I'm better than you are. Yeah. <laughs> that is so brilliant. And he keeps also announcing his name. Like he Ernest does. P. Worrell <laughs> announces his name, Ernest P. Worrell. Hello, world, Ernest P. Worrell. <laughs> but just like, and just like some of the word choices, like unjustifiably in a position that I'd, I'd rather, rather not, not be in. in. Yep. Like that's not something you expect from like a dude who like elbow drops <laughs> someone from the top of a turnbuckle. It's it's a contradiction and it makes it uh, wonderful. Uh, that's when you know you've hit a real human character, Dave. Is when oh, you've yeah. Got the contradictions. And that sort of like cartoony pageantry continues to yes. this day. In wrestling, you mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, John Cena. <laughs> I don't know anything is, about him, but I know he's, he's a, very popular. He and that a, you can't see him. Well, he's a very polarizing character. I think people either love him or hate him. I think because he's like. Why would you hate him? I think because he's kind of like he a Superman like. sort of thing where like, okay. he wins all the time and like so there's so no. like the Yankees, the oh. best team in New York. <laughs> Uh, Ernest Goes to Podcast does not officially endorse the New York Yankees. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, but uh, John Cena has that same kind of presence. And the reason I bring him up specifically, and he's he's a, a current wrestling mm. uh, personality, but I'll bring him up now because, so he's basically involved with the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards for 2018. Yeah. And there is a promo that we'll link to on the Facebook page <laughs> and elsewhere. I see this and blew my mind. Where he is basically playing every member of his own family. So it's like John Cena and Mom Cena, Mom Cena. and his dad, Don Cena. Well, we sure did a good job with him, Dancy. We sure did, Mom Cena. And like a sister and brother, and a baby. Baby Cena. Where it's just John Cena's head, head on a baby. On a puppet baby. Yay, slime! Sean Cena's first words! And I think there's a subcategory that will come up a little bit later also, where it's like actors who play more than one role. Like, we saw that a little bit with Peter Sellers. Yeah. But it's actors who play more than one member of their own family. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. You could even say that for the Muppets, too, to you be honest. You would think it was a no-brainer, because they, they would have similar yes. resem- their family resemblance, you know. Like, duh, no-brainer. But I saw that ad in his performance. I think it's great. Oh, he's, he's got he's, something. He's very charming. He's got something. Yeah. I mean, The Rock, Dwayne yeah, Johnson. Yeah, there you go. Which, it's funny in that ad, because apparently John Cena's fake dad, Don Cena, is like, oh, is, is uh, Dwayne Johnson going to be at the Kids' Choice Awards? <laughs> Aww. It's it's he's like oh I'm at class. There's a level of self awareness to wrestling that I think is also charming and draws you in. Yeah, but I think there's also an aspect to it of people dismissing it in a way that's like I know what this is without having seen it, or the the more common 
insult hurled towards wrestling where people will be like, oh, it's fake. You know, it's fake, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you mean no kidding. it's performed and scripted yes. and scripted doesn't always mean bad. Predetermined. Scripted means brilliant. Yeah. Um, who else we got in the 1980s? Another one we definitely have to bring up in the 1980s is one that has come up in multiple Ernest films, Indiana Jones. Oh, okay. And actually- Out of left field, didn't expect that. Bringing up Indiana Jones is reminding me that we forgot one from the mid 20th century. Uh, and maybe we can talk about them together because they're kind of related. Who is it? James Bond. Oh. I don't know how we missed James Bond, but- you know, when I was first making this list, I was like, oh, James Bond, man, maybe he's an honorable mention at best. Then I watched Goldfinger and I was like, oh, oh no, we need to talk about James Bond. Really? Okay. I'm going to mash them together for a couple of reasons. One is that James Bond is not only an influence on Ernest, but is also an influence is on he? Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. Well, I think James Bond is definitely an influence on Jim Varney. Yes. That he was a James Bond fan and had a watch That's, like James that Bond had. had. 007. Mm. Yep. We know that Jim Varney was a fan of Sean Connery Bond specifically, that he liked those oh. movies from when he was a kid. Okay. And Sean Connery, in addition to being James Bond, is also Henry Jones Sr. He's oh, Indiana Jones' father yeah. in both the figurative sense and the literal sense. You know what I would say? That to me, the James, both James Bond and Indiana Jones, like they're iconic characters and yet they're short on personality. Agreed. Me. They are more like they're more I would like compare them to like a Fast and Furious archetypes. movie where it's like it's more like something to it's about identify with, like a, something you can project yourself onto they're as like a, a brand character, but it's not about the character so much as the stuff they do and the situations they're in. Yes, yes. They're not they're almost like a audience sort of surrogate. Sur yes, yeah, yes. And that's what like I was trying to say. Somebody that wants to live through a Power fantasy. Mm -hmm, absolutely right. Yes, so Jim Varney, big fan of James Bond. Justin says in his book that he basically bought the DeLorean because he wanted a car that James Bond might have driven. Like that uh -oh, kind of- Oh, but like he a, got Doc Brown. That kind of- <laughs> We'll get there. Um, there's, of course, the, the facial Sorry. comparison to Timothy Dalton, who's a later era James Bond. Oh. Um, but it was interesting. I was watching Goldfinger, and I realized that there's a couple of things that James Bond in general, but that movie in particular, made me think of in terms of comparing to an earnest film. First of all, there's this idea of repetitive comfort, which is something we've talked about with like jokes. Yes. Like, you know, Ooh. every time someone says- I say about that later too. Go ahead. So with James Bond, it's like every time he says Bond, James Bond, or mm. orders a martini shaken, not stirred. Like that's akin to like, where's my machine gun? Where's yeah. my little machine gun? Or did those- Did you hear that? Boy, I sure did. did. Yeah. you hear something? So it's like that kind of thing that just like keeps coming back in every movie. I should say every James Bond movie is- in its own universe, by and large. Like, there's some continuity. Like, the guy who plays Q was the same guy for right. 30 years, Desmond Lewin. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit in the Ernest Goes to Jail extra. We kind of talked about James Bond. We did. I remember talking sort of about it. character with that is in a bunch of movies, but there is limited continuity. Yep. Or um, no continuity when you go from actor to actor. There's thing... some things that are consistent and that always have to be there for it to be James Bond, I think. Yes. I will say, in watching Goldfinger, the first thing James Bond does after taking off an absurd looking duck hat is he shoots a grappling hook over a wall. Why? The second thing he does <laughs> is destroy someone's property. Like I forgot how much of James Bond is destruction of property. <laughs> He's basically leaving bombs places or <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Also in James Bond, the names in the James Bond universe. There's oh, a man yeah. who hoards gold. His name is Goldfinger. <laughs> That's right. There is a woman whose name is Pussy Galore. In this movie, there's- Gross. Look, I didn't name these people. <laughs> I know. There's one guy, Goldfinger is working with like a bunch of criminals. One guy disagrees with them. His name is Mr. Solo. 
Like it's just like they all have those cartoony names. It's very bizarre. And I'm thinking about Indiana Jones. I'm thinking the hat. Yeah, the hat. Absolutely, the hat. Being the whip. Indiana Jones and Ernest hat. Oh, being the hat. Ernest. The yes, hat makes yes, Ernest yes. Ernest. If he takes the hat off, he's pretty much Jim Varney. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also the hat being left behind, or the hat alone being a symbol of the character. But yeah, and in addition to just blowing up people's property, there's yeah. this running joke with Q, where Q is the person who gives James Bond all of his gadgets, uh... and the gadgets, for all intents and purposes, are contraptions. Like they all kind of like are jerry rigging things to do other things. Like, hey, it's a it's a tracker that's also it goes in your shoe or something. Or there's a this car has like a secret thing that lets you flip a thing over. Ernest obviously being superior because he's his own Q. That's true. That's true. <laughs> the other running gag with Q is that again destruction of property. Q is constantly like, don't destroy the stuff, James Bond. <laughs> James Bond always destroys the stuff. It's a thing. All right, I see it. Um, but I mainly see it in like so many movies, no continuity. That's what I associate. Yes, with James Bond, that's the most thing. I think it's the biggest similarity to Ernest. The most thing? That doesn't make any sense. Most thing. That's, that's the, like <laughs> the, I said. The, the most direct uh, yeah, comparison yeah, you yeah. could draw. Yeah, and then so to take it back to the 80s and back to Indiana Jones, it's just the same kind of thing. He came up in, what was it, both Rides Again and Africa? Well, Indiana Jones is definitely a hero of Ernest. Yes. And that, you know. Indiana Jones sometimes referred to as, uh, what was it, uh, Alabama uh, Smith Al- or no, whatever? No, Illinois Smith. Illinois Smith, <laughs> which you're not fooling anyone there. <laughs> but because he's a power fantasy, you yeah. know, yeah, I'm yeah. surprised that Ernest never mentioned James Bond, or maybe he did and we don't remember well, and I think we had to have gotten the idea that Ernest's dad was a secret agent from somewhere. Yeah. Like that didn't, again, that didn't come out of like a vacuum. Like some Well, secret agent Ernest. Which is not a thing. No, it's not a thing. <laughs> we wish it was a thing. <laughs> it's one of our made up Ernest movies. Yeah. But it easily could have been a thing. And if it had been, it would have been pretty much a direct James Bond parody. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. I think I made a joke in one episode itself. about Timothy Dalton playing his dad or his brother. Yeah, if the movie writes itself, it's probably an analog there. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. That's interesting. Um, mm. One or two more honorable mentions from the We're 80s. We're still in honorable mentions. Yep. One thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, did you watch those Star Trek episodes I told you about? Oh, I did. So there's a character from Star Trek The Next Generation, Reginald Barclay. There's one thing. I I'm know, making a face. I know you're going to say he's not like an Ernest, but I will tell you. I don't like him, and that's why I don't that's want understandable. to That's understandable. That is understandable. But, but he, go on. He basically is an annoying character that no one wants to be around justifiably correct not unjustifiably he's creepy uh yeah this is a violation of protocol crew members should not be simulated in the holodeck commander i I don't think there's any regulation against well there ought to be the stuff he does is not okay so there's there's two things dang one is that he's an annoying character that no one wants to be around justifiably yes the other is that there's an episode the second episode he appears in he becomes super smart by way of a machine that's right (laughs) so like Oh, and then he, and then that ego, man. And basically becomes a jerk. Reg, you frightened all of us. I'm sure that wasn't your intent. Young children are sometimes frightened of the world. That doesn't mean that their parents should let them stay in their cribs. And what's wonderful about that episode, basically to wrap up Reginald Barclay, the episode where he becomes super smart ends with him talking to Counselor Troy (laughs) about what's happened and basically saying like oh like this experience like helped me like see confidence in myself that's nice and counselor troy says i'm proud of you reg (laughs) and i was like i made this face let me just say ernest would never do these things 
Yeah, I agree with that. Reginald Barclay is, he, he is not nearly as... He would ride that line, but yes. he wouldn't go this far. He's not nearly as charming as an Ernest. Yes. Um, but he does succeed despite his faults, I would say. You know, you can really coast pretty far on charm. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Charm makes a lot of things more forgivable, I'll say that. Uh, again, I don't know how far we want to get into these. What's What else? One I didn't think about was uh, Ed Grimley. Oh, he came up. Oh, Ed Grimley. I yes, thought you don't uh, say. Yes. I must so, say. Another character that I learned about from the Muppets. Ed Grimley. Well, you, I found on eBay like this lot of dolls yes. being sold, and it was like an Ed Grimley doll, a Steve Urkel doll, a Pee Wee Herman doll, and an Ernest doll. And I think Dorothy from the movie. She was like Bob, an extra. She's like, yeah. yeah, she's not really an adult. But it's funny how like these are the kind of characters that become dolls that are sold. So that's another like recurring so thing. In addition to people who play their entire family, I think people who become dolls is something <laughs> something inherent in being an Ernest analog. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and Ed Grimley was one of them, which I think that's what put him on my radar and may, maybe yours as a possible Ernest analog because I hadn't thought about him before. Yep. I think what stopped me was he didn't get that famous. You know, he didn't that's explode. True. You know? No, absolutely. But he was... And there wasn't much to him other than it's a funny performance. You don't know Ed Grimley in the way that you know Ernest. Like, you can predict his reactions to things. You know, you see the depth of his emotions. and For sure. Know. Well, I bring him up for two specific reasons. One is because he will become relevant later. Okay. With another analog. I guess three reasons. Two is that eBay auction where they're all dolls. Mm-hmm. And three is just this quote that I found from Martin Short. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about Jim Varney and John Cherry not always being sure why Ernest works or why Ernest is funny. Right. And Martin Short was quoted as saying, quote, I didn't know why he was funny then. I think that you get into a character or a type of person, and if you play it sincerely without trying to be funny, hmm. sometimes it can be funny. Yeah. And I think that's like a great way, like making something sincere instead of trying to like so hard to make it funny will almost just make it funny by default somehow. That's not quite what I'm trying to say, but I'm, I don't know where the words that I'm trying to get to are. Well, not that everything sincere is funny. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. But if it comes off as false, it's never going to be funny. Laughter and humor is the recognition of truth, I think somebody said. Mm-hmm. It's like when you see something that you feel is true, the laughter is a response to that. Interesting. And yeah. so if it's fake, it's never going to be funny. Right. I think that's kind of in line of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably not quite there. But yeah. I think I kind of get the idea. Gotcha. Well, that's good. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, the last honorable mention I'll just throw in here is Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger. Uh, uh, again, why? here's why. Okay. Played by a classically trained actor. Well. Yeah. They both start out for an older audience and then later become straight up cartoons over the course of many uneven films. There's a lot of cartoon electricity. <laughs> and he even does the nails on the chalkboard. Okay. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Moving on. Yep. Main analogs from the 1980s. Woo! Uh, fi- I think we know. We'll save the best for last. All right. Let's start with my t-shirt. Bill and Ted. They have an excellent, <gasps> excellent! adventure. Previously mentioned on our, our podcast. I'm a big fan. Such a huge fan. Have we ever, have you and I ever really even talked about Bill and Ted? Probably not. You bought me a Ted bobblehead once for like Christmas no or something. It is annoying. Oh, you bought me like a smaller bill. I remember this now. Did I have I? I have like a giant Ted and a small I bill. Don't even the listeners that. can't see, but like Ted is about I'm gonna say eight inches and Bill is like Because they didn't three make inches. an accompanying Very bill bizarre. bobblehead and it's weird. Like what they just make Ted, I don't know. We've it. we've referenced Bill and Ted a lot. What is that word that you brought up 
you found a word for when accents imply a certain oh, level of intelligence. Oh, uh, said on Twitter that he was referring to sociolinguistics, ah. which is, it's kind of a broad term. L- look at Wikipedia. It says, sociolinguistics is the descriptive study of the effect of any and all aspects of society, including cultural norms, expectations, and context on the way language is used and society's effect on language. Interesting. Expectations, I think, is more what Louis was referring to. Right. He's using sociolinguistics to refer to the way that certain accents and so the people... way that certain people speak leads people to assume things about them, unintelligent. So people talk a certain way or have a certain accent, and that makes other people- Make all these assumptions. Immediately there. jump to conclusions. Yep. Yeah. So he was referring to how Ernest's Southern drawl yep. is one of those things that leads a lot of people to believe the speaker's unintelligent. I know He's what this is without having seen it. Also, the surfer accent or yes, the that sort of Bill and Ted have. Californian yeah, surfer person, yeah. Is another kind of accent that leads people to assume the speaker's unintelligent. Yeah. You have to watch this guy. His name is Napoleon. He is a very famous French dude. We have decided to collect other important figures from history for or report what you're doing. Bill and Ted do have that yes. in a way that's analogous to Ernest. They have this accent that people assume they're dumb, but I mean, they're really similar to Ernest in that they're not stupid at all. And they do express themselves in really flowery language and theatrical poses. And I mean, they're very physical. I would even call their poses Shakespearean because like they touch their chest. And the they put listeners their hands can't out. see, but I'm basically just nodding along to everything Aaron has said. Have <laughs> we mean, ever talked about Bill and Ted before? A little bit, a little bit. Because I also love those movies. Like, oh, they're like they're my just, favorite. Like, genuine when I was pleasures. A kid. Yeah, yeah, same. Like they were on TV all the time. Especially the first one. The second one kind of scared me a lot. I didn't like that they were dead ever. I used to like the second one more, and now I like them about the same. I, I like them both for different reasons. But you're absolutely right. Like these two characters, the characters themselves are yeah. not on. Un- Intelligent. They are no. just uneducated. They do amazing things. In the first movie, they collect all these historical figures, like somehow find a way to to create this this rapport with all of them. Yeah, which is crazy. I think what it is, and this is such an earnesty thing. They just treat everybody the same. That's it. And it's so it's, crates, it's wonderful. Joan of Arc, they walk like, up to the French army and go, "How's it going, dudes?" <laughs> and I'm, I immediately yes. thought of Ernest. I, goes, like, I immediately <laughs> thought of Ernest goes to Africa, where he's just like, "Hey, how y'all doing?" It's wonderful. He goes up to Socrates of all people and is like, "How's it going?" Like they're just like, <laughs> yeah, jovial, just, just yeah, and unflappable in a lot of ways. But when they're hurt, they're hurt. You feel they're hurt, you know? Like, yep. they're not shallow characters. Well, they get really upset. They have real stakes in their lives. This stuff is important to them. Yeah. They're decent people. Yeah. There's, they're genuinely there's a, there's a, good dudes. There's an innocence to them also where, like, you kind of feel protective of them, I think, in a similar way to the mm. way you feel protective of Ernest often. Yeah. I need two men. Who's with me? We're with you, Billy the Kid. Because they are... They are children right they're actual literally teenagers they're like, yeah. 18 years old or whatever yeah. in the first movie yeah but yeah speaking of treating everybody the same i rewatched excellent adventure and just started writing down everything they were saying <laughs> ted says their language is no really really lovely oh, yeah. and intricate well the first thing i wrote down in terms of just straight up quotes was bill talking to their history teacher saying mr ryan before you say anything my distinguished colleague ted and i wish to express to you our thanks all the things we have learned in your class. Who talks like Nobody. that? <laughs> That's not... Certainly not a stupid person. I know, I know. Excuse me. 
You know, are there any personages of historical significance around here? And yet, again, all their teachers, and I mean, I'm sure they're frustrated with how they're doing in the class, but people that meet them outside of the historical figures are always like, oh, I know what this is. I know who these guys are. I know what this is. And the fact that we have a character come into this movie early on and tell us that these guys are going to be great. They're going to influence society. They're going to change the world. Yeah. That's great. And that goes a little bit back to the idea of sociolinguistics. Is that what you were saying? Mm -hmm. Where I think there is this sense of like, that's part of the joke. It's like, these guys, really? We're supposed to like take this on faith that like they're going to be like the saviors? Listen to how they talk. But and, and, listen to how they talk. But, but what I'm saying is in, in a very like, I know what this is without yeah. having seen it way. And then I think where that gets taken further in the second movie is that same earnesty idea of like, if you had a neighbor who was this annoying, wouldn't you love to see him get his hand slammed mm -hmm. in the window or go to jail? If you knew two people who were like acted like these people, wouldn't you love to see them die? Like, I feel like there's that no. sort of... But I feel like that's kind of like a, a thing that comes across in the marketing of it, where it's just like, oh. yeah, Bill and Ted are dead. Like, this is what you wanted, audience. <laughs> really? So I, I get the sense of that, and it's you know, very bizarre. When I see people who do that, and I, I think a lot of the Ernest audience, even though I think a lot of times the audience for Ernest is assumed to look down on him, I don't think they really do. This is what I think. I think the people who make Ernest and the people who made Bill and Ted, mm -hmm. they knew that they had us, right? Right. They didn't need to market to us. They already had us. Who they needed to market to are those exact people who are uh... like, oh, I know what this is. Yeah, they're so annoying, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's where it comes in in the marketing sense. Interesting. Because you're absolutely right. If you, if you look at the movie, if you listen and pay attention to what these characters are doing and saying... No, they're absolutely not stupid. Yeah, and but, if you asked fans, like, why do you like Bill and Ted? Why do you like Ernest? They're not yep. going to say, because they're stupid and I'm better than them, that makes me feel good. Yep. That's not at all why people like Ernest. Yeah. Um, but the idea of that as marketing is, is very strange and interesting. And I think that could be it. How do we get those other people who wouldn't come to the yeah. movie? Yeah, because like the trailer descriptions, I was looking at the trailers, and they refer to them as like dim-witted and slow-witted. Are you... See, okay. And I'm like, again, no. Again. Yeah, this is like Ernest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that's really frustrating. Yeah. But like at the same time, in the movie uh, Excellent Adventure, they read about Socrates. They read the words, quote, the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. Mm -hmm. And then they go, that's us, dude. <laughs> like, they're not... They are self-aware. Yeah. Like, it's just so, it's the contradiction. And the way they figure out how to use time travel in oh, the yeah. jail. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, I'll just go back and then use the message. Like, it's so simple. It is lateral thinking to a degree, though. Yeah. Thinking about, like, oh, after the report, we have to come back here and do these things. Oh, I guess that works for a time traveler. <laughs> Wait, what are you saying? Wink, wink for oh, analogs to come. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Yeah, Bill and Gotta Ted. Gotta be a lateral thinker. They're just wonderful. Um, I love them. One last thing I'll say about Bill and Ted. I think there's a homemade quality to the movie to a degree that kind of reminds me of like brain trust stuff. Like it definitely has some kind of a budget. The first one that is. But also the phone booth mechanism is literally an umbrella. It's cartoon electricity. It's cartoon electricity. The future clothes are just trench coats in the first movie. Like it's not oh, a yeah. huge <laughs> budget, but it's not. It It's clever. Yeah. yeah. There's also a ton of tacky objects. There's fuzzy dice. In, uh, I think it's uh, Bill or Ted's bedroom. Oh, there's a Marilyn Monroe poster in well, Bill's sure. bedroom. Yeah. Uh, probably less about the acting in that way. <laughs> um, and there are pink flamingos in the yard and swimming pool. Ah, well, the 80s. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Bill and Ted, they're wonderful. Yeah. 
Uh, I think they're one of the biggest analogs to me. I think so too. I think so too. I'm trying to see if there's anything Perhaps else. Perhaps unexpected. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I basically just continued writing down things they say. <laughs> they talked to Billy the Kid. Billy, you are dealing with the oddity of time travel with the greatest of ease. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's... Um, and then. <laughs> oh, I love the just the, the stating the obvious beautifully. Yes. Like... Yep. Oh, when they visit the future, they say, uh, we take you with us, but it's a history report, not a future report. And then all I could think of was scared <laughs> stupid. It's supposed to be a report about history. Well, the future is part of our history. Especially in our town with our unique past. Uh, okay, moving right along. The second to last analog in the 1980s, Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman. That's the second to last. Second to last. Interesting. Who did you? Oh, okay. Well, I thought he was the big, the main event. Of no, the no, no, no. I, I, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, do you think so? I thought for you he was. No, not at all. Because you always Pee Wee is the character that I have cut out the most of all the <laughs> Ernest episodes that we've done. Is that true? Pee Wee is the reference that See, I, have I thought, had to cut. I thought the Bill most. and Ted got cut the most. Nope, That's interesting. It's Pee Wee for sure. Well, let's let's talk about Pee Wee. Right. Um, Mark J. Hansen, one of our listeners, says. Pee-wee, obviously. I also think, given the iconic outfit and the fact that he is the same character, basically, in different circumstances mm-hmm. in each movie, he's like the classic comedians of the 30s and 40s. Mark's brothers, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott mm. and Costello, and the like. Well, we talked his, about them already. His costume, for sure, yeah. is a throwback, I think. I will say this before we get into the discussion, that he is the analog that probably comes up the most I think so when too. other people are asked, like, what characters are like Ernest, and he's the character that comes up the most when people writing about Ernest describe Ernest. They, like, say, oh, he's kind of like a redneck peewee. There's a couple of things, right? There's, like, they were or both- southern peewee. They were both kind of in the zeitgeist at the same time. Right. They're both on CBS That's at the true. same they time. They were around at the same time. I think even Jim Varney referenced peewee Herman. Probably. He, he basically said, well, me being tied to Ernest, it became like a Pee Wee Herman thing. Sure. Pee Wee's movies all in a different universe. Yep, yep, The TV yep. show is a different universe. Like, there's no continuity. Yes, Pee Wee just being this transcendent character. It's interesting because uh, you watched Big Adventure recently, right? Yeah, I'm not. I'll say straight up that I am not a Pee Wee fan. I know you're not, and I understand why. I like you can explain his to the audience. Christmas special, Pee Wee's Christmas. <laughs> I enjoy. I enjoy the special. Mm-hmm. I think it's well written and funny. Look. Magic Johnson! Hi, Pee-wee. Hi, Magic. What are you doing in the Magic Screen? The Magic Screen and I are cousins. Pee-wee himself as a character, though, mm-hmm. he disturbs me. Yep. On a very, on a, like a, a very immediate, yes, a very gut, le- instinctual level. Like, my instincts tell me, go the other way. Yep. Do not interact with this person. <laughs> and I always trust my instincts. Sure. I always trust my gut. But I think it hit me when I watched Pee-wee's Big Adventure. The realization hit me of what he was. Or no, I was watching the opening of Pee-wee's Holiday or something. Big with Holiday. You. That's when the realization hit me. It's like, oh, Pee-wee kind of reminds me of like a demon. Sure. Like, or like a, a god oh, of you, mischief. Didn't you compare him to Loki? Yeah, like yeah. Loki, the god of mischief, not like Loki in the current Marvel movies. Not Tom Hiddleston. No, not Tom Hiddleston, but like Loki in the, the mythological sense, that like this god or demon that he comes in and he starts something and he like messes with people. But but it's not that Pee-wee messes with people that made me think of that. It's like this power that he seems to hold over yep. his own world. Like he seems like he's in control of everything and he can, he can orchestrate this stuff around him he has all this power like for sure it's like things just revolve around him and yep. it creeps me out and i think that's the biggest difference between him and Ernest is that Ernest has no power the world is always at odds with him and Ernest is just struggling to contend with all the things that are being thrown at him and peewee has it all like wrapped around like, his finger yeah, yeah. it's creepy I, man i think all of what yeah. you're saying is right on oh 
I see, I see, like, yeah, he's the same, he's the same costume all the time. You know who he is. But I feel also, it's weird because Pee Wee strikes me, even though in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, there's a character that's overtly richer than him. Mm-hmm. Pee Wee always struck me as like an aristocratic type of character. Like, not, oh, he's like, very well quaffed. He's, yeah, he's like, got like. Well, I think that goes with the power thing. Like, sure. I feel like he has a lot of power, but I feel like he's not wanting for anything. That's why I brought you something that we thought you might enjoy. Oh, TV. <laughs> well, I like, think he's like a rich kid, kind of like sure. a Richie Rich almost. Like his contraptions to me feel more like Richie Rich than like built and innovative. Sure. I, I think some of that comes from like, I would say like as much as I like Pee Wee Herman, I think he's he's not as sincere as Ernest for sure. No. But he, he's also like, Ernest is just a character Whereas I feel like Pee-wee, I don't know that he ever escapes being a parody of a different character. He doesn't ever come across as a real person. Yes, correct. Agreed with that 100%. Pee-wee is sort of like a caricature of various TV show hosts from the 1950s. He's like a a kid's TV show presenter. He reminds me of a ventriloquist dummy that has come to life. I could see that, sure. And that- like also really creeps me out. Even yeah. like his haircut and sure. like his outfit and everything. It's like somebody's magic wanded adventure liquid dummy, which is like the last thing you want to do. So those guys are all jerks and we know it. I wish I knew more about the genesis of Pee-wee. Well, Elisa told me that he wasn't even supposed to be like a kid's character. Like it was this adult oh, no. it was this adult parody that's of children's shows. Yeah. And then it became like the thing it was parodying. I think that's what creeps me out too, is that it started out as a parody of children's things where you would say inappropriate. it would be inappropriate for children. Right. And then they made it a real children's show, but they kept that tone. Yes. So the tone to me as a kid always was like, this is not for me. Yeah, that's accurate. Like, and I, I, you sense that even though the context is not there or the content is not there. To play devil's advocate for a second, though, I think we have talked about in the past with certain earnest things, the idea that it's not for kids also. Like certain films maybe are less for kids, but I think in general, Ernest is kind of for everybody. But I don't mean that not for kids in the sense that it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, not for kids in the sense that like kids weren't supposed to watch this. Interesting. Like, okay. Or that it's somehow a twist. So it's, it's, I don't want to say perversion. What am I? It's like no, a distortion yeah. of children's accurate. TV. Like That's absolutely true. It's talking about children's TV or it's, it's looking like it, but while there's something sinister under the surface. That's what I mean by not for me. I think all of what like you're saying trick. is accurate. Like it's a trick, you know. And like that's why I always felt like it was like a like a like a. Oh gosh, I want to keep saying demon, but it's like something like really sinister pretending to be for me. That's how I always felt that show was. That is, yeah, I can't like disagree with that. Like <laughs> no. I, again, and maybe that's part of why I I like Pee Wee is just because of that. Like, yeah, I, there's I can something see that there's too. something off about him, and yeah. Like, I mean, people respond to subversion. He, they're definitely both subversive. Like yeah. the worlds that they inhabit are where the storytelling has some sort of subversive quality to it. Yeah. And there's a surreal. I mean, I think what people see with Ernest is like the surrealism. The character's really clearly defined and you can plop him in any premise mm-hmm. and he will still be the same. And you can kind of predict what will happen, sort yeah. of. And they, they have these crazy houses. <laughs> yes. Well, I think a lot of people who don't know much about Ernest, and this is, That's you know, true. in the time that we've done this podcast, it comes up where people think that Ernest, like, developed the way that Pee-wee developed, like, from being, like, some right. sort of actor's, like, creation. And, like, I think Pee-wee came out of, like, The Groundlings or something like that. Mm, and, like, developed into a stage sense. show, yeah. became a movie directed by Tim Burton, became a TV show. So I think they, 
the comparison is made there where it's like, oh, that's probably where Ernest came from, right? Not knowing that Ernest is actually, no, he's just an ad character. That's where he came from. That's where he came from. He's not just an ad character. But, but I, he's a, in yeah, terms of his, In terms of his genesis. A couple other things I'll say about Pee-wee. It's a different Pee-wee in every film. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he's got a doll. He does have a doll. They both have dolls. <laughs> um, he's iconic for sure. Absolutely. And I think there's also the same, not being able to disconnect the actor from the character. Like I know Paul Rubens was very intentionally making it so that you didn't know that Pee Wee wasn't a real person. Here's the thing. I said that Pee Wee didn't feel real, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's what I meant. I think Pee Wee feels real and that he exists. He doesn't feel human. Sure. sure. That's what I'm going to say. I can understand Pee-wee that. He feels yeah. real, but he doesn't feel human. And that's what's scary to me. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't think you're incorrect in like feeling all these things about no, Pee Wee. No, no, no. It's just interesting that like I feel like all the things that creep you out about Pee Wee are all the things that I find very fascinating and yeah you know, like, no it is interesting like it is. with horror films like there is something that draws you in about stuff that's like super weird and like yeah creepy everybody in Monsterland loves your show we used to be afraid of it until we understood it <laughs> i love that story but to take it back to the films you know it's interesting to look at peewee's big adventure again just because i almost felt like peewee has like a reverse not quite love interest where like dotty is super into him but he has no interest <laughs> in her yeah. Like, unlike Ernest, who's, it's usually Ernest's affection that's unrequited. He has no love interest. But uh, <laughs> Pee-wee is the one with no interest in Dottie in the first movie. Why not? I don't know. She's adorable. <laughs> like, I love E.G. Daly in everything. But weirdly, the next movie, which is probably my least favorite Pee-wee thing of all time, mm-hmm. Big Top Pee-wee, he starts out with a fiance. And then there's a second love interest who's a circus performer. And there's well, also like happens. <laughs> there's also this weird like undertone of like Pee-wee having this strange obsession with touching women's hair. It's very bizarre. <sighs> Let's not get into that. <laughs> okay. Um but so yeah, Pee-wee Herman, what else can be said? He's made his mark. He's made his mark. I think a lot of that material holds up. Yeah, I would yeah. You know, I I described him as maybe a less sincere character, but I think there is valuable stuff about the Pee-wee universe in a similar way to Ernest like it was a very diverse show for its time. Yeah. He was very particular sure. about finding like specific old cartoons to like preserve. And a lot of them for the, uh, they remastered Pee Wee's Playhouse for HD. And like a lot of those old cartoons got remastered, awesome. which awesome. is cool so that we have those. I mean, great puppetry. Great puppetry. You know. the, the craft. I understand like the Absolutely. craft of Pee Wee is excellent. Yep. Let me say this and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Okay. I think a way that you could say Pee Wee and Ernest and their their worlds are similar is that they are both art. <laughs> There's something arty you, they are about both, both art. Yes. Yes. And that I think is as good a place to end on Pee Wee as any as we move into the final analog of the 1980s. Woo-hoo. Wait, wait, who is it? Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. I was going to say, do you have any inkling of who this is? The last earnest analog of the 80s. Yes. Is it an advertising person? It is not an advertising person. It is possibly the person, even though you're saying you've cut most of Pee Wee, it is possibly the person we've talked about the most as an analog to Ernest. (laughs) Your face right now. (laughs) I have genuinely no idea who you're talking about. Well, I'll I'll describe him. He's uh, kind of a mad scientist. He's oh! he's a weird guy. Doc Brown. He's a weird guy in a neighborhood who inexplicably hangs out with children. Yep. I Christopher oh, Lloyd man. as Doctor Emmett L. Brown. This is heavy duty, Doc. This is great. Uh, does it run like on on regular unleaded gasoline? Unfortunately, no. It requires something with a little more kick. Plutonium. 
Oh, man. Yeah. I will say, okay, I think Pee-wee is the biggest earnest analog of the 80s in the sense of the, the scope of the character and, like, how that character tentacled out and, sure. like, branched into so many other things and how took over people's minds. Yes. Yep. But Doc Brown is probably the closest 80s analog in terms of, like, personality and... Yep. Well, maybe. And Bill and Ted, too. Yeah. Oh, Mesh yeah. Up Bill and Ted and Doc Brown. <laughs> and you get earnest. Throw on a southern accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Doc Brown. Doc Brown, you know, he doesn't talk like Ernest. I love Doc Brown. But I will say, I was watching the commentary on the first Back to the Future, and they talk about how Doc Brown cannot use a small word if a large word will do. <laughs> and I'm like, that that it's reminds like me of someone, yeah. Ernest cannot use one word if five will do. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or if all five will do. <laughs> yeah. Really, 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 really real prison? The Hootscow, the Slimer, the Joint, Alcatraz, San Quentin, Sing Sing. There's one moment specifically that I'm thinking of, and I, this may be where in the commentary they talk about it, but Marty and Doc are in the 1950s already, yeah. and Marty has already ruined things with his parents so that he has to like go back and fix their relationship. Sure. And he's talking to Doc about, like, oh, how can we get them together? And Doc says something like, The only way we're going to get those two to successfully mate is if they are alone together. So you've got to get your father and mother to interact in some sort of social... And it's like he's trying to find a big <laughs> word, but there's no way to describe like a date in like any sort of like flowery, flowery $10 word language. So he just like trails off and then Marty's like, oh, the dance. And then Doc immediately like snaps back in and is like, yes, the rhythmic ceremonial ritual or something like that. <laughs> oh, there's no big word that exists for dates. So he yeah. can't find it. Exactly. That's yeah. That's great. But yeah, Doc Brown, he's got the same kind of contraptions going. He's brilliant. Yeah. He's a lateral thinker. He's oh, misunderstood yeah. by his town. He's kind of the black sheep of the family, right? Well, I mean, I think that where we talked about Doc Brown the most in was Ernest in Scared, Scared Stupid. Stupid. Yeah. And that's, that's the one where Ernest is the most like Doc Brown. And I believe you literally say he's the most Doc Browniest he's in that ever episode. Been. Yeah. That's why I love yeah. Scared Stupid Ernest yeah, so yeah. much to the point of mariage. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what was that word? Mar mariage. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I almost feel like I don't know what to even say about Doc Brown apart from like. Doc Brown got the ending that I believe Ernest deserved. Oh, uh, which is a happy marriage. Sure, and sure. Beautiful children. Yeah, two point five children. Yeah, and yeah. I'm counting Einstein as the point five and children. That satisfied me. I'm glad he got that at least. Yeah. I love. I'll say that I love Doc Brown. The older I get, I kind of didn't get him when I was, I was younger, and I feel like that might have been the case with Ernest. Had I seen Ernest as a kid, sure. And the older I get, the more I appreciate Doc Brown. And I will also say, Doc Brown is Doctor Who. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting how- He's the American Doctor Who. We haven't talked about this yet. So we've talked about dolls. We've talked about one actor playing all the members of his family. Mm. Interestingly, in the Back to the Future series, that's Michael J. Fox and not Christopher mm. Lloyd. Okay. But time travel keeps coming up. We've got it with Bill and Ted. We've got that's it with Doc Brown. Right. And we'll have it a little bit later a with bit. a few characters. <laughs> um, yeah, time travel. Because people like Ernest are the kind of people that invent time machines. Oh, yeah. Or, or have crazy adventures. Or invent weird inventions in what I would assume is their garage. And they're all kind of shaped like booths. <laughs> yeah. Um, like well, I, that comes from Doctor Who. It does. Like I know specifically they originally in Bill and Ted, the time machine was going to be a car. And they changed it to a phone booth because they're like, oh, this is too similar to the Back to the Future. Oh, not, it's not similar to anything else. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it was like um, intentional ignorance or uh, unintentional or ignorance, or just like the universe, kismet. Yeah, or destiny. Destiny. Yes, that's which is word. another thing that comes up a lot. Yeah, um, or great minds think alike. That's true. That's you true. Know? And booths, chambers, that sort of like invention thing that will come up later. But it's also a Doctor Otto thing. 
Yeah. He's got a big walk-in closet that he gets and into. And Dr. Otto is earnest, so we can talk about that. I mean... <laughs> That's... Oh, boy. I mean, my brain started to break. Otto, so there you go. Yeah. Um, what else can be said about Doc Brown? I think the fact that we've talked about him so much yeah. like, means we, we go got Go back it. to Ernest Scared Stupid. Go, listen, guys, listen to all of our episodes <laughs> before you listen before to this Before you one. listen to this one. We should have said that at the beginning, maybe. I mean, that should be implicit. In, I hope in so. The, yeah, they'll be like, I don't understand the what they're talking about. terms and conditions of, with yeah. Yeah, listen to this in order. But yeah, I think you totally nailed it. Like, Pee-wee is the analog that is most similar to Ernest pop culture-wise. His status in pop culture, yeah. Whereas Doc Brown is like more like character. The person. Him plus Bill and Ted. So the three, the three main 1980s analogs all congeal into... I mean, Ernest is always going to be more than the sum of his parts. Mm, I like that so a lot, yeah. There will never be a perfect combination that gives you Ernest. That's true. Moving on. <laughs> Speaking of time travel, the 1990s. Ba, ba, ba. <laughs> all right, our era. Yes. Again. Okay, that was part one of Ernest Analogs, which was originally intended to be one whole thing, but we had to cut it down because it's so long. We talked too much, even for us. <laughs> so, we will see you guys in part two of Ernest Analogs. Yeah, where we will talk about the 90s and beyond. In the meantime, let's just say thank you for listening. If you're new to Ernest Goes to Podcast, all of this makes a lot more sense when you start from the beginning. Correct. This is I, essentially yes. a dissertation. If you're starting at this episode, we understand. We try to invite people in no matter where they get on this train. But definitely go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes to get a, a sense of the breadth of the Ernest canon and how... Of how far we've come Exactly right. And how, and how this discussion then informs all of that or vice versa. Yes, this has been a 21-episode discussion. Anyway, thank you guys. Share with your friends, and we will see you in part two for Ernest Analogs to the 90s and beyond. Buzz Lightyear is not one of the analogs. Sorry. <laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> Take care, listeners. Viva Lavardi! Viva Lavardi!